as many of us know, as the saying goes, it's, it's not about the money, right? Even, even credit card companies know this, that it's not about the money. MasterCard knows this. I don't know if you remember those uh, priceless commercials they used to run. Maybe they still do. Uh, remember the ads would chronicle uh, some, some like event or like a father and son going to a baseball game and all the various costs that it would take to get them there. So they get on the train, you know, $15. They, uh, go, baseball tickets, $40. You know, uh, drinks and hot dogs, you know, something ridiculous, $70. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then at the end, they say, you know, continuing a tradition, you know, maybe the game is uh, in Chicago, they're watching the Cubs, you know, continuing a tradition of watching the Cubs lose, you know, priceless. <laughs> I, I think those, those ads, they really caught on. I mean, they had a, they had a ton of them. Um, the, and I think it's because they're smart. Those, those ad, the MasterCard knew what they were doing there because they were tapping to something deep within us, um, something that we all believe deep down inside that uh, money, uh, we should use our money or maybe money that we don't have, our credit, you know, to enjoy ourselves. Money is for us to enjoy, you know, a, enjoyment, uh, vacations, a family experience, uh, concert. These things are priceless. You can't put a price tag on these experiences. So you use your MasterCard, you know, conveniently to gain that priceless, priceless experience. So, of course, it's not about the money. But how we use our money does reveal what it is about, what we are about, what we value, what we treasure most. And then Jesus comes along, and he turns to his disciples, and he turns to the large crowds in first century Palestine, and he preaches. And he preaches about money. And he preaches about money a lot. In fact, he preaches more about money and possessions than heaven and hell combined. He preaches more about money than he talks about faith and prayer. I mean, it's shocking. Roughly 25% of his words um, in the gospel speak to the resources God has entrusted to our stewardship. And there are roughly 800 passages in the Old and New Testaments that speak to topics of stewardship, resources, and our money. So, we are going to consider what God has to say about money this morning. And in the last Sunday in March, we're doing a two-week series on money from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, because this is something God has spoken on. And here at Henson, we seek to proclaim the whole counsel of God, even if it makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Um, so, because I personally, I know that there's perhaps no faster way to get me defensive than if you were to look at how I spend, save, or give away my money and start questioning it, you know? Uh, I, and I think, I think we can relate. How quick would you be to come to your defense if a, a brother or sister whom you trust were to come and say, hey, what's, what's up with this? What's going, on, what's going on here? I think we would be quick to rationalize if someone were to confront us about how we use our money. Uh, just kind of as an aside, a couple of years ago, I was uh, sitting in a seminary classroom, 
and uh, the professor remarked how he was having a conversation with uh, a, another local pastor. Both these guys have been in ministry for, for decades. And he said, you know what's funny to me? The pastor said to the professor, I, out of the thousands of conversations I have with people, uh, you know, out of all the emails I get from people confessing sin and struggles, you know, coming to me with different addictions, you know, whatever it might be, no one has ever come to me and thought that they had a problem with how they handle their money. No one thinks they have a problem with loving their money and their things too much. And the professor, who is also a pastor and been in ministry for decades, said, you know what? No one's ever come and talked to me about that either. Thousands of emails and, and conversations about, you know, sex, family strife, uh, addictions, whatever it might be, but nothing about loving money too much. I wonder if we as a church just kind of have this, this area of our lives buckled down. We're just really sanctified in this area. We've got it figured out. You know, we, can, we don't need to underline those, you know, 25% of the gospels that speak to this issue because we've got it down. Or... Maybe many of us, maybe all of us, are self-deceived. Maybe this is a huge issue in our own hearts. And our hearts have become hard because this problem has gone so long undetected. My prayer this morning is that Jesus' words would melt our hard hearts. So let's hear the word of God now. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. If you're using one of these pew Bibles, it's found on page 1617, 1,617. And I'm going to read the whole passage. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet, God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, 
and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. Well, Jesus addresses two basic problems in this passage, greed and anxiety. And then he offers a solution, which is the promise of the kingdom. So that's how we're going to organize our time together. Again, first we're going to consider the problem of greed, then the problem of worry, and then finally we will consider the promise of the kingdom. So greed, worry, the promise of the kingdom. My prayer for us this morning is that God would give us a heart that seeks to put to death the greed and the worry in our own hearts and then lives in the security of the eternal treasure, Jesus Christ. So first, let's consider the problem of your greed. The problem of your greed. Verses 13 through 21. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15 again. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So to set the context a little bit, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's predicted that he's going to be killed by the religious leaders, and he's doing a lot of preaching and some miracles along the way. Many of Jesus' sermons begin by someone in the crowd asking a question, and then it leads to a sermon by Jesus. This is what happens here in verses 13 and 14, as you can see. You know, rabbis or teachers, which is how the crowd saw Jesus, uh, a teacher, they had a great respect for, you know, teachers in that day. They, they would go to, it's not weird or random that a guy would ask a teacher to settle an inheritance dispute. Uh, they see teachers with authority and wisdom. But Jesus isn't having any part of this. He, he's, Jesus doesn't get involved in family disputes as a general rule in the Gospels. He recognizes, though, what's going on in this guy's heart. He recognizes that this guy is greedy. He wants Jesus just to rule in his favor so he'll have more money. That's pretty clear. So what Jesus does is he tells a parable, something that Jesus often does. A parable is usually a made-up story uh, with a, usually one main point. And it's usually pretty clear in the Gospels what the main point of a parable is. A lot of times, if it's not clear in the parable itself, Jesus will go back and explain it to the disciples because they don't get it. But here, we see, just at the very outset, verse 15, what the point is. Jesus is telling this man, the crowd, his disciples, and us this morning to be on guard against all kinds of greed. We see it right at the beginning and then also a summary there at the end. So, these, these verses should expose... And greed in our own hearts, the lie that, that uh, having more things will make us happy. That's, that's what Jesus hopes to do through this parable. So, okay, let's look at the parable one more time. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, 
This is the parable of the rich fool. Okay, we see he's rich, but what's, what's foolish about this guy? I mean, what has this guy done wrong? I mean, if, if we look at it, this seems pretty normal. You know, he, 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 it doesn't hint, the text doesn't hint that he got his wealth or his crop through a dishonest means. You know, he just seems to be going about his business, gets a big crop. What am I going to do with all these crops? I know I'll just, you know, tear down my small barns, build bigger ones. This is, seems pretty normal. It, uh, it reminds me of how we often think of, you know, retirement or just the American dream. I think we can resonate with this guy's attitude. But listen to how God addresses this man in verse 20. This man who could be any one of us. Look at verse 20. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Okay, he's a fool. Where did this guy go wrong? Well, look at the parable again. Notice at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18 how often the personal pronoun is used. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods. And then look at the language uh, that this, this guy believes he's in control. You know, I will do this, I will do that. He has no view towards God or like God willing, if God allows, I'll do this. Then we see in verse 19 that he believes that he can now relax because his, finance, his good fortune, his finances have made him secure. Basically, this guy has made three errors, just to point them out bluntly. One, he's hoarded his possessions. Two, he's assumed that life could be secured and measured by his possessions. He's assumed that security in life comes from and can be measured by his possessions. And three, he regarded the possessions as his, his own. Three basic errors this guy made. This guy lived for earthly concerns. He did not live with an eye towards his creator. Rather, he lived for created things. And now what good will those created things do? He's maybe gained so much in this life, but now he's facing his creator at death. And his grain and his wealth will not pay his eternal debt toward his creator. Even if he had gained the whole world, he has lost his soul in the process, becoming enamored with the things of this world. Unless we are on guard, unless we watch out for all kinds of greed, we could just as easily be this fool. And the end of our life will come, and we'll realize that we didn't live with a view towards God, towards eternity, but we lived for the, the, the happiness that comes from earthly things like family, like jobs, like friends, like vacations. We could become deceived to think that this is what life consists of, those things. So what's the solution? How can we guard against every form of greed, as Jesus warns us, and not lay up treasure for ourselves in this life but the next? Well, look at verse 21. We must be rich towards God. If we truly understand that everything that we have has been given to us and is not ours, but is God's, we are on our way towards being rich towards God. 
So first, we need to realize that everything we have has been given to us, and it's not ours. We cannot keep it. We cannot take it with us. If we truly believe that wealth's only legacy is its fleeting nature, we are on our way towards being rich towards God. If we believe that wealth towards self is poverty towards God, if we really believe that, we are on our way to being rich towards God. This guy did not handle his wealth generously. And we must, because giving is not optional, because money is not neutral. So often we view it that way. But money hoarded and banked on too much is poison and will erode one's soul towards God. John Wesley, uh, a a pastor, once said, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. Money and possessions hold the potential to enslaving us and becoming our master. So, has money or possessions slowly slithered up your feet and firmly climbed your legs and wrapped itself around your heart so that you don't even know that it's squeezing your heart. And you don't even know what it's like to give away your possessions and your money sacrificially and joyfully. Just a few practical things in how we can cultivate a heart that is rich towards God and watch out for greed. I stole most of these from other people. One, mentally place all you possess in the offering plate when it comes by, not just what you give. Mentally place all you possess in the offering plate when it comes by, not just what you give. Two, positively justify what of God's you keep, not just what you give. Justify what of God's you keep, not just what you give. Three, prepare one's heart and budget before shopping. A war is on, so prepare. And finally, Maybe even sacrificially, uh, sacrifice, specifically sacrifice something you love to spend money on. Maybe it's uh, eating out or um, any, so, some form of entertainment for a time in order that you might give that money that you would have spent on yourself or your own comfort, uh, you, that you might give that away for a time. Fast from some form of from entertainment or luxury. You know, the the New Testament doesn't clearly address how much we should give, but I think there's good biblical precedent for starting at 10%, that just being a good place to start. And then thinking about where do we give our money to? Okay, we know we're supposed to give away our money. Who do we give it to? The the Bible's clearer on the who than it is on the how much. Uh, We should give to the needs of the poor. We see that uh, later in the passage. And Randy Alcorn says in his excellent book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, He says this, giving should start with your local Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, the spiritual community where you're fed and to which you're accountable. In the New Testament, giving was not directed to the church at large, the universal body of Christ, but to the church, the local Christian assembly. That would be easier for him to say it than me. Um, So we know also from 1 Corinthians 16, 2, that it's giving is to be a part of the Sunday worship service for local churches. You know, we could, see, we could say a lot more about, about giving 
um, about greed, but Jesus sees the problem of greed to be closely connected to another problem, and that's the problem of worry. So we're going to consider the problem of worry in verses 22 through 30. In the parable, we just considered the rich man was trusting in his riches for security instead of trusting in God. But in this section, Jesus addresses those who don't trust at all. You know, they, they, he is specifically talking to the disciples here, which is interesting. These guys lack riches. They're disciples. They're following Jesus. They've given up their careers. They're following him around. But more importantly than lacking riches, these guys lack faith. Jesus calls them out for that in, in verse 28. You know, both, though, the, the rich man that we considered first in the parable and the poor man here, they have something in common. They are concerned that they have enough to be satisfied. Here, though, we want to consider specifically the insecurity we feel when we don't know if we will have enough uh, for tomorrow or for the future. Now, it's true that we're wealthy historically and compared to the rest of the world. I think that can almost go without saying. But in one sense, we're also poor. You know, we, many of us are in debt. Many of us live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, whether you make $15,000 a year or $150,000 a year, you're familiar with the feeling of anxiety when it comes to even just the basic needs of life, you know, providing for your family. I think that's why many of us are anxiously awaiting that tax return. Uh, I was and still sort of am a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. I uh, grew up in the Twin Cities area. And in 2004, one of the Timberwolves players, it's a basketball team, uh, Latrell Sprewell turned down a $21 million deal because he said, come on, guys, I got a family to feed. Um, so that was obviously big news for a while. It was funny to us, but I don't think, I don't think Mr. Sprewell was joking. He was being dead serious. And 60, I, I found these stats, 60% of all NBA players go broke within five years of retirement. And the league average salary is $5.2 million a year. It's like when you read that, you're just like, what is going on with these guys? Who's giving these guys financial advice? But it's the same people giving us financial advice, you know? Our world, our broken hearts. Uh, the world tells us that if we do not have, we are not secure. So if you're feeling a financial crunch this morning, I'm curious, what is your response? Are you tempted to worry? I've, I've worried about that. And I think some of the ways that we so often deal with our financial stress and our worry is that we kind of try to put it out of our minds and not deal with it. So we put off paying our debts, paying off those credit cards, making that hard financial decision that would change our, the lifestyle that we've gotten used to, uh, that would make us give up that thing that we really like to do. We know worry is bad, so we try to just kind of push it out. The same way we kind of deal with greed. Just push it away for a little while. Hopefully, it'll go away. Well, Jesus addresses our greed, and he addresses our worry head on. And he's harsh, you know. He's, oh, you of little faith, you fool. But then he also comes along as a heavenly father and speaks to us lovingly. You know, consider here in these verses the illustrations that Jesus uses for how the Father cares for his creation. It's a beautiful picture. He tells us in verse 24 to consider the ravens. He feeds and provides for them. You know, the, the ravens, they're not, you know, putting, putting worms on ice 
They're just, they're just trusting God will provide for their every need. And in verse 27, Jesus calls us to consider the flowers and the grass of the field. You know, they're not working hard, yet they are clothed more beautiful than Solomon in all his splendor. God clothes them in beauty. God cares for his creation, for creation is his. He delights to care for his creation. He delights in serving up meals for lions and dolphins and fish and birds. He loves to do that. He loves clothing the millions of different species of of, uh, flowers and plants with vibrant color. He loves to do that. You know, consider the simple beauty of God's provision for nature. And then consider that you, sitting there in the pew this morning, are the crown of God's creation. He values you with an inestimable value. Your beauty lies not in your, in your looks and uh, your talents or anything you own, but in the fact that God specially made you. He made you. He's your creator. He made you and created you in his image. Yet so often we're tempted to think we will only be beautiful if we could afford that outfit or get that car, or have that house, then we would be valuable. So we work for those things. Our life begins to consist of working for those things. We worry about the stock market. We worry about our kids' education or retirement. But we are so helpless. We work and we work, but we are so helpless that we can't even extend our lives by one second. We're helpless. We're dependent creatures. God is finally in control. Of all things, and our coming death, the fact that we're taking in breath right now, and that will not always be, should be a reminder and cause us to depend on our Father. You know, when we worry, we reveal that we have a faulty view of the Father. Plain and simple. We don't really think he's going to take care of us when we worry. You know, that's why the world worries as Jesus points out here. It's because the world doesn't know the Father. But according to verse 30, the logic is that we who believe in the Father should believe that he is aware of our needs and that he's going to provide for us. That's, That's what I want to consider last. We've considered the two problems that face us, the problem of greed and the problem of worry. But now let's consider God's promise in verses 31 through 34. And our response to God's promise of the kingdom should be to trust the Father, invest in the kingdom, and treasure Christ. Trust the Father, invest in the kingdom, treasure Christ. You know, I I love how in verse 32, Jesus refers to his disciples. You know, "Don't, don't be afraid, little flock. So often we like to think of ourselves as like carnivores or something. I, I don't know. I, that's how I like to think of myself. We certainly don't like to think of ourselves as sheep, you know, helpless sheep that are so helpless that we need to be led to some water to drink. We don't know how to figure it out on our own. That's how Jesus sees us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Again, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater here. Um, we can trust that God will provide for our daily needs. How can we trust that? Well, because he's already met our greatest need. He 
Because what, what do we need more than anything? What's our greatest need? Well, according, right, right here, it's we need the Father's kingdom. What does that mean? Well, he, we know he's provided the kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. We know that forgiveness of our sins through Jesus um, only comes through Jesus, and we're welcomed into the kingdom as sons and daughters of the king into an eternal home that can't be spoiled if we belong to God the Father. You know, through, through the death and eternal life of Jesus Christ, we are ushered into God's glorious home under God's good authority as God's people. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom, to have that eternal hope. So if we have the kingdom, the logic is it's ridiculous to worry about the little things in life. You know, it would be like a billionaire getting all bent out of shape because he had a penny in his pocket that fell out and he can't find it. If you're a Christian, God has given you everything in not sparing his son. He's given you his greatest treasure, his son. So how will he then not also graciously give you all things? Won't you trust him with life's needs? If you aren't a Christian, I'd welcome you to become a part of the most loving family on earth. You become a part of the family by coming to terms with your own weakness and your spiritual bankruptcy. And then turning from your sinful rebellion against God and repenting of your sins and believing in him. If we have God for our father, we have we can make 100% secure investments in eternity. These are investments that are way better than FDIC insured. We can bank on God to provide for us, and we can seek his kingdom rather than worrying about life's perceived needs. You can see that in verses 31 and 30. But in order to make these investments, as Jesus is making so clear, you're gonna, we're going to need to die to ourselves. We're going to have to die to our own pleasure and satisfaction often. We're going to have to relinquish our reliance on earthly things. And honestly, that's going to take a miracle. That's not something that just happens because, you know, you consider yourself a Christian. It's more than just doing your charitable duty and getting a tax write-off. But it's a radical wartime attitude towards your wealth and your giving. To, to be rich toward God and to invest in eternity looks like generosity. It looks like generosity towards others. And you might, you might have been feeling a little tense, but I just want to encourage you, as one of your pastors, I want to point out how I think Hinson is really doing this. I think there is great signs that this congregation is being rich toward God. You know, for a church of our size to have a $1 million budget and to have met it last year, that's evidence of God's grace with us. I'm so encouraged by the generosity that you as a congregation showed towards the college students when they went to CrossCon, towards the youth these last two weekends, towards the staff. Lots of signs of God's grace in our church. And, uh, and, and we have, in the Benevolent Fund, you have given generously to that. Just as an aside on the topic of the Benevolent Fund, I just want to say something in, in terms of how I think we can grow in this area. You've been very generous in giving to the Benevolent Fund. Uh, but some of you 
haven't been humble in receiving help from the benevolent fund. Uh, And I think, honestly, that stems in a self-sufficient attitude. We don't like to receive help. Now, there's other reasons why we might not want to receive help from something like a benevolent fund, where we pool our resources and give to the physical needs of others. Maybe it's because your spending hasn't always been wise, and you know that. You know your spending hasn't always commended the gospel, so you feel a little guilty about accepting help. Here's what I tell you in that situation. And it's a little radical, but not according to Jesus. Open up your finances to a trusted brother or sister. Be transparent with them. Ask the person that you meet up with for discipleship to help you evaluate your own spending, your saving, and your giving from a kingdom point of view. You know, maybe read through Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, with another uh, brother or sister here at the church. And then be humbly willing to accept help from your biological family and from your spiritual family here when you're in need. You know, we need to declare our independence from the slavery of self-sufficiency and from the world's way of looking at money. You know, the, the, we think money, that's a private thing. That's just, that's just something I deal with. But we need to invest in the kingdom in community with one another. And I think we're we're doing that. We need to do it even more. Uh, If our finances reveal, if we're investing either in the eternal kingdom or the earthly kingdom, don't you think it'd be a good idea to have someone beside our spouse maybe look at our finances? If Jesus seems to think that this is such an indicator to what kingdom we belong to, it'd be a good idea to get some feedback, I think. And we then we have to be humble. And we have, you know, whether we're the one looking at someone else's finances or the, we're the one who's having our finances looked at, you know, you, you got to be ready if someone were to say, hey, I noticed that you're spending more on, you know, maybe eating out or uh, entertainment than you give to the church. Is there, is there a reason for that? Or what's going on there? And just having a conversation about that. Because what we invest in, what we spend our money on, indicates what we value most. That's what verse 34 is getting at. At, there at the end. What we invest in reveals what our greatest treasure is. And our greatest treasure owns us. Our, it reveals the king that we serve. Last week, Michael, in his sermon, asked us a tough question. He said, in his first point, I think it was, you know, fill in the blank. If I only had blank, then I'd be happy. If I only had blank, then I'd be happy. Or to flip it, he'd say, you know, if, if I lost blank. I'd be devastated. What you put in either of those blanks is probably what you're seeking and treasuring most. If you put family, a person, some possession, or your job, your health in that blank, you're, you're most likely treasuring that and seeking that. And Jesus's words are, that will all pass away. That stuff is transient, and it will devastate us. If that's what you're treasuring most, it will devastate you when it's gone, and it's going to go. The kingdom of God should be what we treasure most and what we seek and invest in. Jesus Christ needs to be our greatest treasure. And Jesus Christ only becomes our greatest treasure when we recognize how deeply we need him, how desperate we are, when we become dependent on God for everything. 
And we can only have God, Jesus, as our greatest treasure with God as our Father. You know, we, we need a kingdom perspective as a church, as individuals, in order to be truly generous. We need to be broken over our sin of greed and worry. And then we need to be full of joy for God's great generosity towards us in the gospel. That's, that's the only way that we will change. Our, our Father has proved his great love and generosity towards us by sending his greatest treasure, his son who lived the perfect life and died the death that we should have died so that we might know life. He has already met our greatest need in the cross to be forgiven of our sins. So it's foolish then to be, to be greedy, to worry. Just doesn't make sense because greed and worry reveal our lack of faith in the Father. If you have felt maybe your greed and your worry in a new way this morning, Jesus comes gently alongside you, and he says, fear not. I've given you the kingdom, for I've given you everything I have. I have given you myself. So will you let go of the treasures of this world in order to hold tightly onto Jesus? As a church, let's lovingly challenge and encourage one another to go all in in seeking the kingdom of God and treasuring Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an eternal treasure we have in your Son, Jesus. Help us to see his beauty. And may we trust your provision as a father more than we trust our own self-sufficiency. Lord, may we not to continue to avoid our sins of greed and worry. May we not ignore our tendency to live for this life, but may we live with an eye towards eternity. So help us, Lord. May you use us in the lives of others to help one another. And may you be glorified as we seek the kingdom of our God together. In Jesus' name, amen.